Hi there. Welcome to another Dishcast. This is the last one of the full summer. I'm taking a couple weeks break, as I always do at the end of August after this. So I was thinking, who could I get on to have a good chat about everything and who would be amusing and fun to talk to? And that man is Michael Moynihan. He's a, a big honcho now at Vice, right? What's the actual position that you hold uh, there? I don't know how big my honcho-ness is. I'm a pretty low honcho. I've just been there a while. I'm a correspondent, so I do on-air stuff. There yeah, is. and if you are browsing through your streaming service and see it, it's always worth a look. I always enjoy, there's a lot of, it's kind of macho Vice. It's always people going around with people running around them shooting at people and but and have you done that you've done that kind of thing right i've done some of that i, th I think we're less macho now but that's for <laughs> now he's can we switch the recording off when i can tell you no i do some stuff like that i mean i'm too old for that now andrew you know i'm the probably the oldest correspondent there since you know my buddy ben anderson to a Br british guy who you know, was in Afghanistan in 2001 and a BBC guy who did war correspondent stuff and is fantastic and very talented. But yeah, it was just us. We're the old guard. You are, as we, we just discussed before we came on the air, clearly one of the most handsome pundits there is, which is not exactly <laughs> a very high bar. Exactly. We didn't discuss it. You make it sound like I was saying that. <laughs> Do you know, Andrew, how handsome I am as a pundit? I mean, yes, yeah, sure. I mean, as we were yeah. saying, only Jeffrey Tubin really comes close to your powerful sex appeal. I am the Jack Germond <laughs> of my generation. Yes. Oh God, Jack Germond, what a great man he was. Now he was an old school guy that stayed reporting yeah. until the very end. And there used to be, even foreign reporters would hang on until they were decrepit, right? Yes. I mean, but no, not any longer. All the millennials and Gen Zers are rushing in and replacing all those well, old people. Don't really report. I mean, there's kind of a practical reason for it in some ways and I can't entirely blame them, but I mean, remember, when you and I started doing this, that there was a lot of money in it, you know? I mean, especially newspapers make tons of money through advertising. And, you know, if you wanted to, you know, if you were in midtown Manhattan, you could go to a bar and see half the staff of the New York Post at this one particular bar at five o'clock because, you know, it was over. And then you went home and you did your thing. Now the news cycle doesn't end. There's no money. So you need more people with fewer resources. And now what do you get? You get people who sit behind desks telling you, that the newest, you know, Jurassic Park is transphobic. I mean, that's the kind of <laughs> quote unquote reporting that you do. I mean, rather than going out and doing it. And of, and of course, like when people on the right, especially piss on the New York Times and good God, do they deserve it these days. They still do. They still do actual reporting and the Wall Street Journal does. Right. So there's a lot of people that actually do that. But, you know, it's increasingly hard and it has to be the Washington Post who has Jeff Bezos as a benefactor. And I guess the New York Times doesn't have Carlos Slim anymore, but they, you know, they make a lot of money. But yeah, I mean, these websites, you know, the places where you and I used to work, like the Daily Beast, I mean, it's a rather different uh, website than when you and I were there. I caught the very end of kind of vintage journalism. I'll say this in the intro to the book. My first day in journalism was literally the last day in college. My dad picked me up and literally before he took me home, he dropped me off at the Daily Telegraph building in Fleet Street back then. And that building is, was the main character. In Scoop, yeah. It's the same building. And William Boot, yes. <laughs> had at that point, the, the great reporter William Boot, uh, yes. feather-footed through the plushy fens, uh, passes the questing vole. That is the first you line got of it. William Boot. Yes, that's the yes. one. Yes, <laughs> a, a wordsmith bar none. And he, he eventually became 
William Deeds, or he was based yeah. on William Deeds, who then became the editor, and who was the editor when I was there, and he was the famous editor who was to sit back in his chair, and he had a strange speech impediment where every S became an S. And so if you actually, and but charming, fantastically yeah. funny, and also actually had been a reporter. He'd been all over the bloody world, writing the same slightly elaborated and slightly sort of Boris Johnson uh, missives, yeah. where if you didn't know something, you just filled in some color. But uh, yeah, he was fantastic. And he was, he was my editor. And we also had a, the Lord... Hartnell, his name was, Lord Copper, who still lived there. He lived, he was right upstairs, and they would always look upwards as if to God when mentioning him. Well, Lord Hartnell, what, Lord, what do you, and then occasionally we get in the message, like Bill said to me once when I was leaving, Sheriff Shannon, Lord, Lord, his Lordship would like to know why are you going to America? <laughs> I would have to explain. Anyway, and they had a bar next to it, of course, which oh, yeah. is where all these old hacks hung out. And they were permanently drunk. And they would show up at 11 o'clock in the morning. And we would leave by 5 p.m. That would be it. And the money was remarkable. The, yeah. the, the lunches were immense. I was talking to Tina about this not that far. Went, the great days of the big magazines in the 80s and 90s particularly. Really, when you look back on them, they're an incredible festival of decadence and clearly over the top before the fall. I mean, I love Tina. And I did a thing, you can look this up, an interview with her when her Vanity Fair diaries came out for the fifth column. Just Tina and I sat down and talked for an hour and a half. And it was one of the best things I think we've recorded and got one of the best responses because it's, you know, people miss those stories. You know, I mean, journalists and movies are always my favorite because they're crusading people that are always saving the day. And, you know, they're always, you know, morally upright and the rest of it. I like the ones in the Evelyn Waugh books, you know, I mean, the, the greatest thing about Scoop is arriving in Africa, which, you know, it was, you know, based on, um, the war in Abyssinia when Italy invaded. And, you know, William Booth arriving with these elaborate cases full of things and full of changes of clothes and everything, but at least they went. You know, the old joke about the British journalist, and I don't think I'm allowed to say this anymore, but well, you know, it's not my joke, was the British journalist getting off the plane and saying, I I'm sorry, has anyone here been raped and speaks English? You know, I can <laughs> kind of show up and, you know, write it down quickly and then get the fuck out of there. And, yes. it's just, and I think I'm probably the only person who, in this disaster that's happening, and it's been unfolding in Afghanistan. Well, it's been unfolding for 20 years, but the denouement of the disaster is I keep on thinking that, you know, the only thing that I, that that's great that came out of all of these conflicts in Afghanistan were George MacDonald Fraser books, you know, were the Flashman books. I mean, it's like we should have read Flashman and realized, well, you're maybe not going to survive in Afghanistan. <laughs> so, well, let's do it. Have you, did you ever go to Afghanistan at any point? I didn't. No, there was, I had a desire at some point to do things like that. And there were always people ahead of me in the line in, in, in a lot of ways. And I didn't have any experience. And it was just like, just show up and see what I could do. But I never ended up doing it. I've been other crappy places, but, but never Afghanistan. But, you know, from a distance, look, I, when I did Bill Maher's uh, show on Friday, which was interesting. And uh, at one point, there was something that was said. And that, you know, it's one of those things that you have a response. And then all of a sudden, you change the next topic. And Bill said, and I have a lot of respect for Bill, and I like Bill a lot, and I love being on the show. And he said, you know, there's a lone person in 2001 who made the right decision. You know, it was 99 
to nothing vote in the Senate and one person who, you know, made the right decision in the House, and that was Barbara Lee. And I wanted to say, I really would have loved to have interjected and say, you know, that's, I don't think that's quite correct. I mean, it is correct factually. But, you know, it's almost like saying, you know, the Maoist international movement was right about the war in Iraq. I mean, you know, kind of, coincidentally, she was right for the wrong reasons. And I think that when I see somebody like Tony Blinken up there, and he's just being berated and brutalized by everybody, but I think in a very narrow sense, what he says is right. His problem is actually that he doesn't get to the broader thing. He is right in the sense that, you know, we did achieve that goal of running al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan. And I don't know, looking back in 2001, and I think you and I both had similar views that have changed dramatically since then, both of us, I don't know what else one could have done. I don't think it the American people would have allowed it. I don't even think Europe at that point would have allowed it to just sit back and say, well, let's see if we can have a conversation with these people sometime in the future and ask them to be nice. Managing it is a, a totally different thing. And that's, of course, where everything went pear-shaped, is that this sense, and I, I've always said, and, and get in trouble for this, is that the idea that George W. Bush was Islamophobic, that used to be a thing that people said all the time. Uh, absurd. It, absolutely absurd. If anything, it's absurd. It, it's, it's Islamophilic. Yes. Is the, issue, is the issue. I mean, remember, he was at a mosque two days after saying this is a peaceful thing. And it was it almost was Islamophiliac. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was the sense that, that there is no difference. I mean, we're all essentially, we all bleed red. And if we go in there and explain to them, you know, the joys of uh, the Dixie Chicks and, you know, what a burger or something, they'll, they'll take to it. And I think it was, that was actually, you know, totally wrong that everyone thought that this was this Islamophobic moment because uh, Ann Coulter said, let's bomb them and convert them to Christians. No, I mean, the whole thing is really depressing, but mostly just on a human, on a human level of actually watching these people chase after planes and fall off them and, you know, desperately try to get out. And, you know, it seems worse to me than Saigon in 1975. It does look like that at least for a day or two, it's been yeah. absolutely horrifying. But I, I like your reminder that almost no one opposed this at the time when we went in. And the reason for that was that to have allowed what happened on 9-11 to go unpunished was unthinkable. In fact, it would have been to invite further attacks. Quite how and why we couldn't nail down bin Laden and Al-Qaeda sooner than we did is a big question. But I Afghanistan is not just a country, it's, it's almost a continent, and it's incredibly hard to run. I don't think any central government has ever really run it properly. And we found it hard to find him. But I think there was a moment after that when a certain amount of reluctance among the um, people on the right, especially people like Bush, to believe we we're just going in there and throwing our weight around. He wanted it to be moral mm. and noble, just as he was insistent that what we did in Iraq would be noble and moral, which meant in both cases, we had to somehow match our desire to get rid of an, what we thought of was a threat. In fact, it really wasn't that big a threat. And even when you look at 9-11, you realize that was quite an achievement, but it was really a one-off. It wasn't as if we had a massive army ready to strike again, and they didn't strike again with proper defensive things. But the idea that we could not have gone in there seems silly to me. The idea that we wanted to do it well and right was noble and good, but obviously we failed. We should also remember that Obama ran, and this is really quite, on defending the Afghan war yeah. as the moral and the good war, whereas Iraq became the bad war. Mm -hmm. Whereas, of course, both wars were ultimately, as we subsequently found out, just 
completely resistant to anything that we might call victory. It's also important to remember, and people have a very difficult time uh, remembering this stuff primarily because they're often too busy rewriting their own interaction with American foreign policy and their own, you know, sort of advocating for various conflicts, whether it's Iraq and Afghanistan, sometimes even Syria and Iran. But people tend to forget that what it felt like at the time. And I, I know that people often say that, but it can't be undervalued and underappreciated, particularly because while it didn't happen again here. There was the sense that it was going to happen again here, whether it was anthrax or, you know, you know, people being arrested in Lackawanna, New York, and these plots that were probably mostly concocted by the FBI. But then when you look at what happened very soon thereafter in Spain, I mean, the brutality of those bombings in Spain, what happened in London on 7-7, the various attacks that have happened in France. And, you know, because remember at the time we were told that they were not going to have any tax there because they opposed and stayed out of the Iraq war. And it's, well, I don't, that's part of it. But I think that also when you have a lot of people from, you know, cultures and religions outside of the one that was previously native to Germany or native to France, there's going to be problems regardless of the Iraq war. And people didn't want to accept that because, I mean, there were a number of attacks in Germany too. So it did feel very real. But then I look back in the past five years and, you know, we haven't had an election that was about foreign policy. We barely have conversations about foreign policy. And, you know, when I saw what was happening in Kabul, I wanted to, you know, send a text to the Kremlin or send the text to somebody in Beijing and say, here's your moment, guys. Do it. I mean, <laughs> honestly, take Taiwan, take Estonia, take Latvia, Lithuania, cleave off the other half of, of Ukraine, because what the fuck is anyone going to do about it at this point? I mean, there is, an, I, and, and again, this is not an argument for we should have gone in longer and harder. Absolutely not. It was a disaster. They were both disasters. And in hindsight, I really wish we hadn't done one and we had been much more limited in the other, and that's Iraq and Afghanistan. But at the same time is that, you know, what happens when, you know, Abkhazia and South Ossetia were taken from Georgia, when half of Ukraine was taken, when, you know, if now is the time for China to go into Taiwan, it's, you know, just wait out Chiang Kai-shek and then 50 plus years, who's going to say anything? Look what they've done in Hong Kong. I mean, who said anything in Hong Kong? This is an incredible abrogation of their, you know, the deal and the promises to the people of Hong Kong and no one lifts a finger. And that, a lot of that is as a result of just the disasters of Iraq and Afghanistan. If America is going to be the world leader, I mean, we no longer have bases, obviously, that we can operate out of in Afghanistan, which is, you know, a problem if you want to project American power in the region. And again, not saying that one should, but it's just pointing out that it's a very different world as a result of these catastrophic defeats. Yes. And, but the catastrophic defeats in some ways, uh, I think, were pretty much foretold by the very actions that we originally took. In other words, I don't think there was a way in which we could have rescued the Iraq war in ways that we actually did kind of rescue it, but it was a mess and remains a mess. But we'd also completely destroyed our, our international credibility and our moral credibility in some respects in terms of occupying those countries. But when you look, when I look, and I think of the reasons we thought Afghanistan and Iraq would be easy. And it was partly because we had sort of been, I think, huffing our own fumes since the end of the Cold War. The end of the Cold War was, for our generation particularly, an incredibly powerful moment because it seemed to reflect our capacity to do anything. We watched the entire Soviet Union collapse and then become, in Europe at least, fledgling what seemed to be fledgling democracies. We even saw Russia look like it might be a democracy for a while. But at the same time, of course, 
by removing the threat, the global threat of communism, by the end of the Cold War, we had removed the very basis of the entire legitimacy of the United States being a totally global power. Mm -hmm. That we were doing it to prevent communism. Once that disappeared, what were we doing? And we could say we were making the world safer for democracy and free trade and all the rest of it. But at some level, that kind of motivation to the benefit of mankind is never going to really work with your own domestic audience. And I think that's the key thing. The American people don't want us to be invested massively with ground troops far away from this hemisphere. And it seems to me as if America is returning to its pre-Cold War natural position of being globally distant power that, that controls its own hemisphere, intervenes somewhat elsewhere in the world, but is essentially inward looking and not particularly interested in running the entire planet. Do you think that we've just taken time to adjust to that reality and that Iraq and Afghanistan were sort of major reality checks? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, f for me, especially. I mean, I think that when I look back to how I was thinking on 9-11, I was in New York on 9-11 and saw half of that with my own eyes. And it was such a shock to the system. And I think the way I processed it and the way a lot of people processed it afterwards, looking backwards to American conflicts, I mean, we weren't thinking of 1983 in, in you know, Lebanon of, you know, Ronald Reagan saying, all right, it's time to, to pull up and go after the Marine barracks is bombed. I mean, we're thinking in the context of the 20th century, we did this before we can do it again. And that was totally separate and separated from, I mean, the, if we had just a, a Solzhenitsyn on the other side, if we had this kind of, this sense of that the Cold War players were pretty evenly parsed out and we understood the good guys and the bad guys. And this was quite obvious there were good guys and bad guys too, to be simplistic about it. But there was no way that we, like with, you know, a global footprint that was NATO. I mean, NATO it was existed to be the counterweight to the Warsaw Pact. I mean, what was the United States doing globally at this point? It, I mean, good God, if you look at what preceded 9-11, I mean, you know, the attacks in Africa, the attacks in, in Yemen on the Navy ship in Yemen, it's like th there was no way this was not going to happen in some sense. It was going to happen. How we responded to it was, if you look at the books, by the way, I think this is probably an interesting thing. Go back to the AEI people. People who were all real, you know, raw on this in 2001 and through the Bush administration. All the warnings about foreign policy prior to 9-11 were about China. It was all that, and that is, again, because it's like some, you know, hangover from the Cold War, was nominally communist China. Nobody was prepared for this. And I don't think that we ever became prepared for it. I mean, after that, it was just like, we started really flailing. I mean, truly flailing in 2005 in Iraq. And after that, it was about, you know, stopping the bleeding from the Anbar awakening and to the, to the you know, various surges and the rest of it. There was no rejiggering of how we thought about our place in the world that I could tell. Except that going back to the AI peeps, and I was at the New Republic also, and there was the, a, a sort of confluence of both liberalist nationalists yeah. and neoconservatives in that realm. They had been marinated in the politics of Israel and the Middle East. Hmm. So they really did have an argument here. They had studied... Muslim fundamentalism. They had seen it with Hamas. They had seen it with Hezbollah. They were very versed in this. They understood who Saddam was. So they actually had a ready-made 
analysis of this, which was this was clearly a function of Islamic fundamentalism, and you can't negotiate with these people. We have to go to war with them the way that Israel had to go to war with them. And so we did have this template, only it was a template that might make sense for Israel, but didn't make sense for us uh, because our interests are so much wider and more global. Yeah, we had Bernard Lewis was ready to go the second. Uh, oh, his books. Remember, his books were flying off the shelves and were bestsellers. And I remember that about you specifically, and you know your uh, your blue period, the blue book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember we went the. Did you go to the Atlantic after that? Was that where you went, or Time or something? I can't remember. There was some when you. There was Time, and then there was the Atlantic. And then the Daily Beast. Yeah. And then the Daily Beast. Um, yeah. But I remember the the biggest surprise to me at the time was not you shifting on Iraq, was the shift from you on Israel and the pushback that you got, which was pretty crazy. And it's funny because it, I remember it fracturing a lot of friendships to make it like slightly personal. And a lot of people who were mutual friends of ours saying, well, Andrew's lost the plot and, and you know, he's gone anti-Israel. And then at some point people would say, oh, he's gone anti-Semitic and all this stuff. And that was a, a pretty interesting moment too, because that the, the Israel politics, which are very much confined to a very diehard group of people, then kind of spilled out into every conversation about foreign policy. And everybody was supposed to have some sort of opinion uh, on Israel, and particularly in 2005, when the Gaza, uh, with the Hamas stuff and the Gaza war, is that, you know, I, I just remember specifically having conversations with people about you. And about all of a sudden, you had these heterodox uh, views of Israel. And I can, you can probably imagine who I was having those conversations. With. Uh, let me think. Uh, yes, well, we'll, no. we'll, we'll. but <laughs> the the reason there was partly because I had realized at that point that the United States had an interest in having other partners in the Middle East apart from Israel, and that it was harming us in the broader war on terror to be so completely entangled with Israel. At the same time, even though I thought Israel deserved our support, the absolute refusal to compromise at all on the settlements and the way they treated a duly elected American president who was attempting to get some sort of truce there, or at least some sort of pause in the conflict, in order to help us in the broader world, in the broader campaign against Islamist terror, just struck me as incredibly short-sighted and, and somewhat contemptuous of the interests of the United States. And when I looked around me and, and saw people in Washington who, who backed Israel, basically, against the United States in that particular context, some of the scales began to fall from my eyes. But it was part of the reassessment of what we're doing in the world, which I was forced to undergo given the consequences of what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I think it was all part of that, really, the sense that we do need, we can't be dug in the way we were dug in. We can't have no access to alternative views in the Middle East. We can't just throw all our chips in with Saudi Arabia without any kind of outreach or some kind of connection with Iran. These things had to, be, had to shift, it seemed to me, according to US interests. And there was a phenomenal resistance to saying and believing that. And of course, as usual, the way people express that is by calling you an anti-Semite, even though, whatever, I mean, you can't defend yourself against things like that. But I do did worry that APAC no, was I'm becoming happy to far that you're too powerful. You're back to just being a racist. <laughs> <laughs> well, other things too. I'm racist, yeah. uh, misogynist, uh, uh, a homophobe too. I'm deeply homophobic, homophobe. as you know. Absolutely, yeah. 
Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's my internalized homophobia. Wow, that's like being a self-hating Jew, but being gay. Oh, it wow. is, except yeah. I, except like all grown-up members of a minority, <laughs> those of us who are aware that we're not perfect, I think my definition of homophobia is being more hostile to homosexuals than is absolutely necessary. The, the, you know, every minority group can be irritating. Every minority group can have its pluses and its minuses. And this whole idea that if you're just a minority, you're obviously eternally blessed and good and pure <laughs> is just in contradiction to the basic reality. But yeah, I shifted. I mean, the book that I've just put out, I mean, I try and account for that shift. For me, with Israel, it was a settlement. Did you did it you was, put pieces in the books? I mean, I, I could have easily gotten a review copy, but I like to buy things because I like to support right. my friends. Okay, but you will uh, buy it soon. I will purchase it. But did you put pieces in that which you now disagreed with, and which is I know all. No, I made it. I kind of made a decision that would be silly to do. If I'm putting out a collection of pieces, it's going to last. I don't want to put pieces in there that I'm now ashamed of. On the other hand, I also realized did I had to. Come across pieces that you were ashamed of. Well, not ashamed exactly, but were terminally, terminally naive, put it that way, and yeah. excessively excitable. And in context, I thought inappropriate to reproduce because I didn't want to make that point. However, I do include a piece of what I got wrong about Iraq. So I try and acknowledge those decisions. In some ways, I don't. I, I think I was right in certain areas. And I, uh, for example, I think a defense of free expression, the Danish cartoons come to mind, yes. was a very important thing. And you were also instrumental in, in standing up against Islamist I censorship. I was very involved in that. And I mean, it just happens to be that at that moment, it was Islamist censorship. I mean, if it were, if I was the same age today, it would be somebody totally different. It would be uh, enemies domestic, because <laughs> um, that's where it's coming from, right. mostly at, the, at, at this point. And it's, you know, it's funny to the stuff that, you know, I regret. I went. I actually think back about that because there was a bit in somebody pointed out to me ages ago. It's now gone. That there was this long thing in my Wikipedia entry, which I had nothing to do with, never written a word of, looked at maybe twice. To I, I looked at it twice to write a piece about it actually, because there was a bunch of stuff that was wrong in it that I wrote for the Daily Beast. I think the headline was "Never Trust Wikipedia with Your Life," and it had me being a totally different person, which was in in some sense reassuring. But you know, it was about this interaction I had around the Muhammad Kart tunes. And it was about that woman, Molly Norris, who has just literally disappeared off the face of the earth because of threats. And I think she was at the Seattle Stranger, a Dan Savage's paper. And she did this totally benign cartoon of, you know, I'm Muhammad and it was a teacup. You know, I'm Muhammad and it was a fork. It was this kind of I'm Spartacus, but we're not really showing Muhammad, but anybody can be Muhammad. And then she went underground and I said, this is unconscionable. We cannot be doing this in the United States of all places. And I thought back about that. And to tie these two things together is that do I, what do I regret about any of that? Because I was so hot and heavy about that issue at the time. And I realized not, not a lot, nothing really. I mean, I was probably throwing a little too many punches and I've calmed down quite a bit and I'm much less pugilistic than I was then. But, you know, when I ask about, you know, the stuff that you regret or stuff that not you're ashamed of, but you regret or you look back and you say, how the hell could I have written that? is that I think the same thing, because I've gotten so many things, 
not necessarily wrong, but I've changed my mind on a lot of things. And people sometimes dig into your past and say, well, aha, well, what about this? And I say, well, yeah, no, that was fucking stupid, wasn't it? And people are, so you're trying to get out of it. No, I truly changed my mind on things because I read a lot. I, you know, grow. And unfortunately in the business we're in, we're often asked to comment on things that we don't know a ton about on short notice when you're in a fucking green room at, you know, CNN or Fox or whatever, they change the topics on you. I mean, it happened to me at Bill Maher on, on Friday night. They threw in a couple of things three minutes before he went on. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Didn't know we are going to talk about that, but fine. So yeah, you know, you change your minds, but you know, I'm fundamentally the same person. And so I think of it myself, and this is always the difficult thing when I'm writing now, am I being the same person I was then? Am I getting a little you know, over my skis here? Do I know what I'm talking about? You know, am I being emotional rather than sensible and rational? Or am I indulging a sort of nationalistic instinct that I just have somewhere deep inside of me? And so that stuff, being wrong or correcting yourself on things really just looms over you for, looms over me and has for a long time. Because it makes me second guess everything. Because, you know, these people who are totally sure of themselves, I find them fascinating and kind of repulsive. Well, it was also made much worse by blogging, which meant that you were literally writing stuff within minutes of events happening. So, and, And so inevitably you had to say, and I was always pretty clear about this on the blog, that this is all provisional. And you have to take this kind of writing in a different kind of way. There's a piece in the book called Why I Blog, which kind of gets into that. But you're right. When I look back and I see the emotion, especially post 9-11, I mean, that was a traumatizing event that made me, was obviously both, my brain was obviously absorbing trauma for months after it. And rage, the, the idea that someone from outside this country could come in and destroy something at its very center. I wonder if, for example, and this is just a a mind experiment, is let's say they had bombed a shopping center in the Midwest and not the World Trade Center, Mm -hmm. and that there had been as many deaths, but it was not such an iconic, symbolic act. I wonder if we would have responded in exactly the same way. I think we felt, honestly, I think we felt we had been raped. There was a kind of violation of going to the World Trade Center that, that, and, and bringing the whole thing down. So in other words, it was, we're human and we can pretend we're reasoning and we are doing our best. But I think of my brain in the year and a half after 9-11 as one flooded with adrenaline and with rage in ways that blinded me to my own blind spots, as it were. Though what I did was as you, you may know, I, I produced an ebook, I Was Wrong, in which I reproduced every bloody, embarrassing, awful, hideous, excessive rhetoric that I used you around actually, that time. Did that? I did that. You can, you can find wrong? it. I Was Wrong, it's called. Oh, <laughs> it's many pages long, and it, it's a absolutely horrible accounting. And I did it almost, maybe it's my Catholicism. I just really felt the need to be accountable. But also, you know, we're not all powerful. We have a little bit of influence. But insofar as we had any influence in causing the sheer horror of what happened in Iraq, the tens, hundreds of thousands of deaths, and then the idea that I had supported as a moral urgency, a war that ended up torturing human beings, was a moment for me of real reckoning. Because nothing could be worse than that, that we went... I thought we were going to prevent torture, and we ended up replicating it. Now, not in the same way as the dam, not 
anywhere like the same scale. But that we went that far really showed me that the temptations of global power are really incredibly great. And we're probably better off as a country not exercising them. I mean, there's a sense that when people are taking shots at, at journalists, and as they should, and on Twitter and on their own blogs and the rest of it, the journalists come into commentators, journalists, historians, whatever, come into these conflicts and these events as fully formed humans. I mean, that's not true. I mean, I recall that in the early days of your blog, after 9-11, that you demonstrated that by having a book club. I remember right. there was a Robert Kagan book or a Victor right. Hansen book. And we're, you know, of course, we're reading things that are kind of meshing with how we feel at the time. Right. It's also an acknowledgement that we don't really understand this stuff. I mean, we're trying to figure it out as we go, commenting on it as we go too. And so I always, I do find it kind of distasteful that people, there's a certain type of person will say, you are not allowed to comment on anything in the future because you got Iraq wrong. As, you know, if you held everyone to the standard on every issue. There's nine sides to every issue and eight of them are wrong. And if this is the case, then everybody has to account for what they did all the time. And to say you had blood on your hands, if anyone ever said that to me, I'd be like, God, you really overstate my influence on these things. Because right. I was, and you know, I'll tell you, our, you know, our mutual friends, it was inevitable that Hitch would come up, that Christopher wrote a very moving piece about this. And I thought it was one of the better things that he wrote uh, surrounding Iraq in Vanity Fair about a soldier who went to war and died in Iraq because he was convinced by the pieces that Christopher wrote about Iraq. And it is a really heart-wrenching piece. And I know that Christopher took that stuff very seriously. He went to his funeral. I think it was in Oregon. I can't recall. But it, it, he went to the guy's funeral. He took it very seriously that somebody read his writings and acted on them the only way he knew how to, which was to join the military and get himself on a you know C-130 over to Iraq. And, you know, there's some people that had an enormous influence and other people who had less of an influence. But I don't, I find it very sort of suffocating that everybody has to constantly atone for mistakes that they made as they were learning. Because that is something that the people that take shots about Iraq a lot never learn from the Cold War. You know, the Noam Chomsky's of the world. I mean, I don't, should we blame him for uh, the Khmer Rouge or for Pol Pot and for that genocide, one of the largest of the 20th century. I mean, I, I, I can criticize him for it. I don't, I never liked this thing of you have blood all over your smock because you were confused about something. You were angry about attack on, on America and you were convinced that this was the right way to go. You know, I'm, I was in my 20s. I was pretty young too. And, and my defense is that it was, I, I really did make all these calls in good faith and I was yeah. trying to do the right thing. But that, of course, is always the case when you do bad things. I'm thinking when you talk about pundits or politicians making judgments in very confusing circumstances, which are inevitably confusing, about the history of this COVID epidemic and how Captain Hindsight, as Matt and Trey would put it, is, is constantly sweeping onto the scene with his cape and declaring, oh, well, of course, we all knew this has happened. These fools had no idea, blah, 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 blah. And of course, viruses have completely foiled us in the past and surprised us in ways that we should know by now. Um, where are you? Are you vaxxed? I am. I am. I'm double vaxxed. And I went to pick up an unrelated prescription today. And it took me 45 minutes to get it because there was a line of people getting uh, their boosters. Good. Uh, their Moderna boosters. I mean, 
I mean, this is <laughs> these are people. These are immunocompromised people. Yeah, they were all people that were, appeared to be like over sixty-five. You know, and you're right about this too. And I'm not. Uh, I, I tend to try to not attack people too much in this stuff, though. It's annoying because there's, there's this thing that's happened with you know the Captain Hindsight when it comes to COVID is that. I think the Trump era screwed us up in a lot of ways, but one of the ways was this weird relationship we have with the word truth, that we know what's true and what isn't. And, you know, these headlines uh, about, I can't remember which who in the Senate was, uh, maybe it was Ted Cruz, talking about the already debunked uh, theory with no evidence, et cetera, of a lab leak, which was always plausible. I mean, it, it it seemed to me very plausible. And I think John Stewart's little rant about this on Stephen Colbert's show was great. It was very funny. And that's kind of how I felt about it. But, you know, th this is funny on this first draft of history thing that we now are in a place, and I think there's a post-Iraq thing to it. There's a Trump thing to it of that, you know, come on, guys, this is not the truth and we have to call it out. Well, there's some times when that's true, right? When it's pretty apparent that the election wasn't stolen because there's no fucking evidence that it was stolen. Right. And I just spent, you know, time with a psychopathic pillow guy yelling in my face about this. And he didn't provide <laughs> a tiny, even the smallest bit of evidence, you know, in, okay, fine. But when it's something like that, that's something that's contested, like the efficacy of masks, you know, all of this stuff, like we can have a debate about this without jumping down each other's throat in doing this thing, which by the way, has miraculously disappeared during the Biden administration. It's this phrase that you kept on seeing in magazines, blogs, websites, and newspapers was without evidence. Somebody said, comma, without evidence, comma, it's, you know what? Donald Trump did that more than anyone in the history of the American Republic, but people are still fucking doing it, you know? And their politicians do it all the time. That's how they survive. You know, they do things and say things without evidence, but we stop calling that out. And so it makes people like me and a lot of people that I've talked to kind of question what the game really is here. I mean, are people really trying to protect us or is it just a kind of ideal, another ideological battlefield? Because COVID I really wished wouldn't be. And I don't know why Republicans don't like masks and think vaccines, like why would that line up with what you feel about abortion? There's no sense that this is, I mean, now granted, there are a lot of people that on the extreme kind of left who don't trust pharma and they've never liked vaccines, et cetera. But this is an ideological fight now, which is, is so grotesque to me that when you see people healing over and dying and these breakthroughs and all this stuff, and, you know, no one thought to say, and this is, I'll hand it over to you because this is your home territory. Nobody thought to say that maybe it isn't the best test case. Bear week in Provincetown. Maybe <laughs> not like where we, it's just like what I am. I'm in a basement, you know, with the pet shop plant boys playing, erasure comes on, we're, our bodies are sweating, we're heaving. And <laughs> it's just like an afternoon for me. I'm just going to get groceries. It's just like everywhere all the time. Did no one think to point that out? Is that my homophobic for pointing that out? No, no. I've gone on CNN and pointed this out. That, that in a town of that has 900 uh, winter mailing addresses and accepted <laughs> yes. 60,000, 60,000, first of all, twinks, and then 60,000 bears in two weeks, which is 120,000 people. To experience... Did you explain to Wolf Blitzer what a twink was? <laughs> I mean, I, I would love to one day. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, I actually talked to Anderson Cooper about this, and he oh, pretended, yeah, right, of course, right. he feigned complete ignorance yeah. of all of this. What? What's what? a twink? I, I have no idea. And bears are what? I thought they uh, stopped making Twinkies, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to have a factory somewhere that produces Twinks every year. They all show up around July 4th. There's not a, a little, there's not a body hair on them and barely any body fat. And then the bears show up with their hairy backs and, and big bellies and the occupancy, whatever occupancy says 49 means you have to have occupancy about 25 because they take up twice as much space. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I once, I once took Matt Stone to bear week, a uh, bear tea dance, just as a it's shits and giggles. And <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, we were walking down the street. And I'm like, so about, what did you make of that? I'm just curious because he didn't say much there. And he said it was like being on the subway in Tokyo, <laughs> that he was clearly aware that all this made sense to the people around him. But he was so utterly <laughs> out of his element that he just had to experience it anthropologically, which I completely understand. But look, no, we would, and they would, they were partying like they hadn't partied for a year and a half because they've been locked up. You lock up all these gay men for a year or so and then tell them it's okay and they can all go out dancing for the first time in a year and a half. You're going to have an explosion. As it was, no one has died. Mm -hmm. After and 800 people were infected, most of them vaccinated, but only seven were hospitalized and no one died. And they're all out of the hospital now. I had friends who got it uh, for a second time, and I have texts saying, you know, I don't know why I'm feeling fucking lousy this week. I'm really irritated with it. Or I've got flu-like symptoms. I don't know what I'm going to do, blah, blah, blah. But it turns out it was very mild COVID. My, my view is that Delta has made a bit of a difference. But until we find out that Delta is more deadly or more lethal, then worries should be relatively low because it's in the interest of viruses to evolve so they're more transmissible. It's not in the interest of virus to evolve so they're more deadly because that way they kill off the population they need to inhabit to Yeah, replicate. they tend to weaken over time. They weaken. Yeah. And these vaccines are, from everything I can see, pretty amazing. But what I'm here's what I'm curious about because I just can't get my mind around it it seems quite obvious to me you should get a vaccine. Better safe than sorry. If you get the vaccine, you don't have to wear those bloody masks so much. You don't have to worry so much. So why, especially on the right, does this, this become so... Just I, I read people I used to think were sane. I will never get the vaccine. This is tyranny. I, I just... Why? I honestly have a hard time wrapping my mind around it. I, I can't quite understand. I mean, one of the, the things you hear constantly is the invocation of the word freedom of personal freedom. And of course, that anybody who understands, you know, the general concept or the sort of libertarian idea of it understands that, you know, what is the extreme libertarian position on government? It's the night watchman state, right? I mean, you should have somebody that protects you against foreign invaders and protects you against your own citizens who want to rob you and hurt you. And there's some element of that in it. I mean, the vaccine prevents you from getting it and spreading it. Now, these breakthrough cases change that a bit. We don't know how much. I mean, I'm going to wait and, and see on this one. But if you are spreading the, this virus, that is not a personal freedom issue. You know, it is not my body, my choice, because your body is then affecting another body. Well, they can get the vaccine. Sure, they can get the vaccine, but there was a point where there was no vaccine and people were still against masks and making this argument. So it's not an, an entirely, I mean, I think it's a slightly disingenuous argument to say that, you know, this is because 
we choose to be a population apart. And now look, I'm kind of trying to figure out what I think about these media stories, where it's kind of like the regret porn slash death porn of people on their deathbed saying, I wish I had gotten the vaccine. And it's, I mean, you know what I have to say to that, honestly, I, this is horrible. I, yeah, you should have, that's too bad. Should have worn your seatbelt. You shouldn't have smoked 700 rocks of crack. I mean, there's only, I only have so, like a very shallow reservoir of sympathy for people who know that there's an alternative, but for some bizarro, clannish, tribal, ideological reason, decide not to get it. Well, we don't know what's going to happen down the line. Well, you know, people make these arguments all the time. I mean, I, you probably see that I'm occasionally huffing on this little vape thing because it prevents me and has prevented me for a long time for smoking cigarettes, but they've made all of these moves, the FDA, et cetera, saying, we don't know what's going to happen down the line. We don't know. And as one doctor told me, if every single person in the world quit smoking cigarettes and started doing that, we'd save millions of lives every year, right? This all the, well, we don't know what's going to happen down the road. Well, what we do know about vaccines is that if they're bad for you, you tend to find out at the beginning. You tend to find out very quickly. They don't kind of incubate for 10 years and then kill you later. But you're probably going to die anyway if you're 150,000 pounds overweight, have type 7 diabetes. <laughs> and, you know, are, I mean, this is, I don't understand the rationale here, but I was very happy to read your piece that I, you know, was hoping somebody would read, which was, you know, let her rip. I mean, what we're doing our part. You're not? Okay. You know, I mean, this is, it, look, it, we don't have socialized medicine here, which is one of these things, like when you do have socialized medicine, you you get these kind of interventions into people's health. Well, we're paying for it. So therefore, well, we don't have that. So let her rip, you know, I mean, let your, you know, yes, we'll, there'll be some cost associated with it, but you know, there's nothing at this point that we can do. We cannot force no, and, people into getting vaccines. So they're just gonna have to deal with the consequences. And the, the cost might actually help get them vaccinated. <laughs> that people might observe, uh, carnage around them. And we're seeing that in some of the southern states, a big uptick in, in applications for vaccination. I think the perspective that most makes sense to me is that people want to get back to their lives. And that I totally understand and sympathize with. And most people don't like living in an emergency. And it's a terrible thing for society. It's a terrible thing for kids to be kept at home and not really engage one another or be educated properly. It, it's isolated. All the bad trends in our culture Mm -hmm. which come from being alone in front of a fucking laptop or, or a phone, not connected with our neighbors, not connected with community, becoming depressed, doing all this stuff is made much worse by the uh, discipline required for an epidemic. Now, I, I support that discipline. I was super careful, wore a mask all the time, almost never went anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. But once the vaccine happened, I want to get back to reality. And to some extent, viruses are not things we can destroy. They are things we can manage to live with safely, at least less unsafely. So I'm, as I've said multiple times, I've had 28 years now living with a virus in my bone marrow. It's basically disappeared, mm -hmm. but I take pill every day. At one point I was taking 36 untested pills just to prevent possible death. This was You're down to one 20. pill now? Down to just one pill a day. It's a fant It started with 36, it's down to one. No side effects. In fact, if you're gay now, if you're negative, you take one pill a day to prevent you ever getting infected. If you're positive, you take one pill a day to prevent you ever infecting anyone. It's PrEP and what's called you know, prevention by, treatment by prevention is what they call it. Treatment as prevention is the term that they call it. In other words, if you have your viral suppressed, you're not going to infect other people. But living with it 
not accepting that there's a safe space, you know, ever. And there are more viruses coming down the line, I think. I mean, because certainly climate change is going to have a big impact on that. As, and we can see that in history. I mean, one of the terrifying revelations in, when I did this piece on plagues was finding out that, in fact, climate change had precipitated many of the previous ones, including the Black Death. That, in other words, you want to keep these little organisms where they are. You don't want them moving around too much. And if the weather changes, they may well have to move, or animals connected to them will move. And that will bring them into contact with new animals, new people, and that's when viruses can take off. So I think we're going to live with this for a while. And we're just going to accept this a mitigation level event that we're going to constantly have to I think we're going to get booster shots every six months for COVID. We're going to get we get the flu. Maybe at one point they'll have a flu COVID joint vaccine and we can get it all done. In other words, the 36 pills position coming down to one can be done with these other medications as well. You know, it, it's also interesting. I mean, you are alive because I'm presuming, and I think I know this story correctly, that when you were diagnosed, because had you been diagnosed maybe five, six years earlier, the early treatments like AZT were kind of disastrous on people. They had really bad effects on people's bodies, you know, in that we moved away from that because, and, and look, everybody took it because what was the other option? And I completely right. understand it. I completely understand using it. I completely understand being the guinea pig, but you know, these things evolved. And, and the most amazing thing about this is the fact that we got this vaccine so quickly. And, you know, for me is that, you know, I am a diabetic, you have HIV. I survive every day. I have this device on my body right here that's, thank God for Big Pharma, for creating this incredible device that tells me my blood sugar all the time. When my father was a diabetic in the 1950s, he, there was no way of testing. He had to go to the hospital if he wanted to figure this out. And they'd put it on a slide or they'd weigh his, they used to weigh food, like physically weigh food. I don't know if that was a common thing or if my father was just an insane person, but that's what he told me. And, you know, these medical innovations is, this is why I, I believe what I believe about, you know, being sort of moderately libertarian. I mean, I, I crack on it a lot, but, you know, I love free trade and I love the innovation that I'm talking to you and looking at you on video via this thing. I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, we could handle this pandemic because of the unbelievable success of technology, unbelievable success of pharmaceuticals. And it's just a miracle that, you know, this happens and more people didn't die because all of these vaccines and all this technology came from the countries that a lot of people want to destroy, <laughs> to be frank about it. And, and Big Pharma. This is, it's another fact of the fact that Big Pharma, for all its great flaws, ended the AIDS epidemic yes. more than anybody else. It was a Merck drug yes. that added the final link. And, you know, people concentrate on activists and activists should have their uh, given due props, but it wasn't actually what really did it. It was the change of technology. It was change, for example, in computer graphics in the 90s that enabled them to model the HIV protease the in real time. And they wouldn't have been, it would have taken a million years before to to go through all the possible combinations that could block that protease. Mm -hmm. But computers will let them do it immense, immensely swiftly. So we're, and, and the same with these Myrna vaccines. In other words, maybe one day we will look back and say, you know, this is the first major pandemic in which we used super technology. We were able to shut down the society for a very long time without massive dislocation. We're now coming back pretty quickly. That didn't happen in previous plagues. And we've developed this vaccine very quickly. It's safe. We're getting through it. At some point, people may look back at COVID as a point in which we mastered 
the beginning practice of dealing with these kind of events. And sometimes you, you know, if it hasn't happened for a hundred years, it's understandable that government's going to fuck up. Mm -hmm. And when you look at previous plagues, no government ever got on top of any of them. It, they're incredibly hard. And the point is that if you fuck up at the very beginning, if you miss like a week or a few days of shutting down the economy, it can wreck the entire process for the next year or two. And then even then, when you look at Australia, they locked down, they kept it all close, and now it's breaking out again. But I think we got to live with viruses rather than yeah, think we can defeat them. You know, it's funny that if I if my life was monetized on YouTube or something like that, I would be very careful about saying anything about lockdowns, for instance, because I don't I mean, I've looked at this stuff. I'm very open minded about it. I don't have any ideological position, but it doesn't seem to me that, you know, California, which had pretty rigid lockdowns, did much better than Florida and to even say these things. And again, to sort of tie this back to the conversation about speech. And, you know, I am a little nervous about the the um, power of some of these tech companies, which, you know, runs up against my libertarian instincts sometimes, but, you know, I don't want to regulate them as utilities or shut them down or nationalize them. But I do think it's kind of crazy these days that if, that if to even say something about, you know, I don't think lockdowns worked and I don't know if that's something that they're taking people's posts down for, but I know that there's things that have, people have had posts taken down for that turned out to be true or it yes. turned out to be- including the know, lab leak. Including the lab leak stuff now, earlier. Is, I don't like this uh, place where we are. And again, I don't either at truth, all. This idea that there's truth. And, you know, I was talking to Camille about this on the podcast. You know, it, it, it's in a way in talking about, you know, what better time is there to live in? And, you know, if you ask anybody, uh, if their answer, when would you live and where? If your answer is not right here, right now, you're wrong because I don't know what the better option is. But we were talking about this in the context of a lot of this racial reckoning stuff, because you know Camille is incredibly uh, smart and all this stuff and has really interesting perspectives. And one of the things we were talking about when he was getting in a bit of hot water about, about this uh, CRT stuff and you know how he was saying, I don't think you should ban this for X, Y, and Z reasons. I was looking at some of the textbooks and I did you know a bit of research on this and I went to a Florida school board meeting and the rest of it. And one of the things I realized, and it is this kind of a similar, and this was the transition into this, was that, you know, where better to live than here and now, was that I look at this country and I look at where we are and I realized that we're having the entirely wrong conversation about all this stuff when it comes to what's true and what's not, et cetera. I was at the school board meeting and people got up, they're pro critical race theory. And they said, you need to teach these students the truth. And then they started chanting. They got, all got kicked out. Truth, teach the truth, teach the truth. They got kicked out. And then at the end, they passed this resolution to ban 1619 Project and CRT from the classrooms. And they said, we're doing this in the service of truth. And then I realized something about this is that, you know, again, when all of these companies are trying to adjudicate what's true and punish people and take away their livelihoods for saying things that aren't, because they're trying to protect people, because God knows if they don't hear it from you, they'll be crystal clear in their thinking and never grasp onto another conspiracy theory. But I, I, I realized this particularly about this country, and I'm sure this is kind of relevant to you as somebody who's an immigrant to this country, is that you can write a textbook for kids that is just unmitigated disaster. Everything that America's done is terrible. Everything from 1776 or 1619 to today, and everything in the book will be true. And you can do the exact same book 
from 1619, 1776, that is just rah-rah jingoist and everything in that book is true. So it's not a matter of what is true and what is good and what is bad, is it's always a matter of emphasis. It's a matter of when people say, oh, the New York Times is full of shit. They're not writing things that aren't true. It's just a bias of story selection. It's just that, you know, literally there was a story the other day that I sent to Camille and he tweeted it about, about like the problems of black deaf creators. And I was like, is this just like a, like a ball tank now where they just pick things and yeah. this is the story for the black deaf creators. I don't even know what that, that means. But at this point, it's, it's so funny that we're having these idiotic conversations talking past each other about how repugnant the U.S. has been and how horrible we are and how horrible capitalism is or how great it is. And it's guys, you know that there's a vision of the world in which both of these things are true. And that is actually the correct one. Because, it, you know, there are an enormous number of shitty things that this country is do, has done wrong. But I really challenge people to find me the place that, that this doesn't apply to, that colonialism doesn't apply to, that anti-immigrant sentiment, and there's anti-immigrant sentiment in every country in the world. It's just part of human DNA that they don't like people from other places. It just exists. We're pretty good about it, actually. We do very well compared to a lot of other people. You know, Venezuelans leave the Maduro regime. They end up in Brazil and they end up getting beaten up. They end up, you know, having their encampments burned down in Colombia. I mean, this is, there's no, eth there's no ethnic thing here, but this is just happens. I mean, for Christ's sake, there was riots against immigrants from Central America in Mexico. Look this up. In Tijuana, they were attacking immigrants and burning down their encampments there. I mean, God, yes. why do we think this? We're in this moment where we have this uniquely kind of self-involved thing that we're the only people on the earth. We invented racism. We invented every bad thing that ever happened. And nothing good has ever come out of it. And it's just, you know, I would make his, his to watch. Here's a phrase that comes to mind from my mentor, actually, Oakshot. And he said, he wrote once this sentence that has always stuck in my mind. Everything is true, so long as it isn't taken to be anything more than it is. Yeah. In other words, the key is context and emphasis, as you say. And so my position on critical race theory is that this society should do a lot better in exposing the horrible realities of its past. And insofar as we have a better, clearer, less whitewashed understanding of things like the Tulsa massacre, that we understand better just how unbelievably barbaric slavery was. That is all to the good. And we can see it alongside these extraordinary enlightenment ideas that tangled with that and eventually overcame it. We can see it alongside religious fanaticism as part of this country's core DNA. We can see it alongside the notion that we are going to be adventurers and conquer new worlds as part of this country's DNA. It's complicated. And the trouble with CRT is not that it raises important questions about historical racism and deep white supremacy in the past, is that it insists that's the only way and the truest way of understanding American history, which it isn't. It's one part. It also insists that it hasn't been discussed before. And that's totally wrong, too, is that, you know, we're just trying to talk about slavery. I mean, I, I, there is... We've been talking about it for in, years. People are... In, people's education. Florida, it's mandated by law that you yeah, talk of about course. in a place where Ron DeSantis is taking a, a pretty hard and, 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 in my opinion, pretty stupid line on this. But, you know, we have been talking about this stuff. If you go back to Francis Fitzgerald's book, 
She wrote a book in 1979, I think it was called Learning America or something. But it was just a survey, a pretty smart, interesting survey of textbooks. And it was the same debate in 1979. It's, you know, and she was going back further and saying, you know, we're very progressive now because we're talking about slavery and we're talking about this, that, and the other. But I don't know. I mean, this is also taking them at their word, which they shouldn't be taken at their word, that they just want a broader discussion of these barbaric parts of America's past. Of course they don't. That's not what it's no, about. No, I love those conversations because I want to move beyond that barbarism. I hope that we do. And and of course, that I think what, what is, we're also suffering from is what conservatives did when it came to you know, what provoked, you know, the Howard Zinn books, right, is the overstatement of America's glories in certain places. And now we have something that's fairly interesting is the overstatement of America's miseries in the horrible. I look at some of this stuff and I'm like, that's not true. I mean, so for instance, I started reading Ibram X. Kendi's uh, book. I finished the uh, stamp from the beginning because, you know, I, I don't want to talk about this stuff if I haven't read it. So I find some time and I read it. And there are just some massive mistakes in the book. Because he's not giving an honest account of America's founding, America's past, America's recent past. He's giving a narrative that he's established and he's trying to fit, fit things into this pre-existing narrative. And that's not how you, I, I have a very hard time calling him a historian. I mean, that's not how you make history. That's how you make, you know, ideological arguments. And he's not saying, well, you know, actually this part's complicated or eh, this part's, it's just a, you know, endless litany of America's sins and crimes. And a lot of them are hugely overstated, or if not outright wrong. And, you know, a lot of the stuff, of course, is, is unfortunately the, true. The, the really troubling move to me is to say that liberal democracy and liberalism, the Constitution itself, its pretensions to think about the rights of man, individual liberty, religious freedom, limited government, are all purely cynical masks for racial oppression, and therefore have to, if we're going to end racial oppression, the constitution itself has to be dismantled, that liberal procedures have to be dismantled, that objective standards have to be dismantled. And that is, is poisonous to the United States. And when you object to it, of course, the strategy then is to describe everyone who objects to this illiberalism as a white supremacist, which is, you know, very easy to do. And, uh, well, I know, and again, the rhetoric... I know, it's amazing. It's not that there's a new... It's not that there's a new argument, it's new rhetoric. You go from being a racist to white supremacist. This kind of rhetorical skewing of the debate. I won't talk to someone who talks about white supremacy in America today because it exists in a tiny fringe of people and is not in any way a descriptor of what American society currently is. And the most successful, multiracial, multicultural democracy in the history of humankind. And if you look anywhere else on the bloody planet, do you think the Chinese are somehow less racist than Americans? Do you, uh, do you, do you no. think that Russians are? Do you think the Do you think that the Chinese in Africa are behaving according to Ibram X. Kendi's view of the world? I mean, the whole thing is just preposterous, and also de devoid of any understanding of the rest of the world or of any history outside the United States of the last few hundred years. It is it's, it's incredibly crude, and it's no, being I, imposed I, by no. intimidation and bullying. As, as yeah, I'm I mean, sure you agree. <laughs> Yes, it's difficult. It's funny because, I mean, you talk to somebody from Jamaica and they're like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I'm too busy hating Trinidadians. I, I mean, we have, we have a different kind of hierarchy here. But no, I mean, the, the point of, of that, you're talking 
about a definition of white supremacy that somebody decided to rewrite without your knowledge. And because my question then is that if you're going to replace one word, and you're going to replace that word because you understand the potency of that word. That's why you've taken it as your own and, and redefined it. You also have to redefine other words too, uh, because you can't just do one, because then the, the whole uh, structure starts tipping. Because if a white supremacist is no longer a white supremacist, what is a white supremacist? And I know that sounds like some sort of, you know, who's on first thing, but there, we have white supremacists is somebody who believes in the supremacy of the white race. So if somebody doesn't like Ibram X. Kendi's book or says, I don't CRT is bad, or, you know, I like Thomas Sowell or whoever, you know, some conservative, what do you, and you say, oh, they're a white supremacist. What do you call actual white supremacists at this point? People who, you know, are neo-Nazis, are they, you know, super white supremacists? hyper white supremacists, ultra, I mean, it's gotten to a point of absurdity that this reworking of the language is actually, and it's the thing that you never want to say because it's always misused, is actually Orwellian because to rewrite definitions of words and then use them against people is why we kind of took Orwellian in, into the language. And you know, the other thing that, that I, I wish were true, because I think this would prevent some of this, but there's no way of doing it, of course, is that you do have an incredibly toxic, the most toxic accusation in public life, which carries the lowest evidentiary standard. So to call somebody racist, you can ruin their lives. You can, they can be out of a job forever. Nobody wants to adjudicate it. They don't want to look at the evidence. There's no court for it. You're done. You're fired. Nobody wants you around because who wants to work with a racist? I don't blame them because I don't want to work with one either. But there's no, when you say it, there's no, you know, charge for calling the police when there actually wasn't an emergency, which there actually is a charge for, right? Making a, like a false report, right? Filing a false police report. There's no filing of a false police report, which is why people throw this around so liberally, because what's the downside? It sticks to you like napalm, does nothing to them. They come out the victor. The person that they don't like is now walking around, you know, with this sign around their neck, in the scarlet letter on them. I mean, let's have a debate. Well, why would I have a debate? I can just get rid of you with one kind of swift motion and you're done. And that's yes, but, very troubling. But it requires not just the mob doing that, but it requires people in authority to get rid of the people. Absolutely to, true. To succumb to the mob. So in, in some ways, the responsibility lies with the leaders of liberal institutions who have refused to stand up to this yeah. because they themselves are afraid of being mobbed in this way. And when it happens in like the medical area, where, for example, there are obvious small but important biological differences between various ethnicities and racial groupings and subpopulations of humans for reasons that are completely understandable within evolutionary logic, and you have to pretend all these things are social constructs, you're going to misdiagnose. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to prevent an early diagnosis, something that might have helped. There are re this is not racism. It is an acceptance of reality. And I think one of the things that's also here, and it's true with the virus too, is that there is this sense that, and when I'm thinking about the epidemic, I think at the end of it all, like in five years time, say, and we look back and we compare various countries and how they did and how they didn't, I bet you it's a bit of a wash. I, I bet you that there are some things that are happening in nature that we can mitigate, avoid, duck, but essentially is gonna take place whether we like it or not. Yeah. And humans are incredibly resistant now to the notion that nature, biology, reality exists as a constraint on what we can do. It starts with this idiotic idea that a child can do anything they want in the world when, in fact, we're all gifted with some things and not gifted in others. Mm. This acceptance that reality is there. I mean, I'm, 
I was thinking about this in terms of gayness and, and why I'm, I just had to learn pretty early on in life that what I wanted to be true, that I was straight, wasn't. Now, there were many ways I could have yeah. lied about that. That, or, that, that turned out very much not to be true. It turned out not to be true. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was you pretty obviously love untrue. Men, yes. yes, I do. Uh, and, <laughs> but that required a certain humility to accept that's what you are. And also to accept that means I'll never have kids. Not because I don't want to or wouldn't. Well, I don't want to. But even if I did want to, I couldn't. <laughs> I mean, I remember when Dan Savage and his boyfriend were, were adopting a kid and they were around this table and everyone else was full of these stories of how they tried so hard to have a child and couldn't and the ones that had troubles with fertility and so on and so forth. And Dan said, well, the same with us. I've been fucking my husband now for the last 10 years and no <laughs> luck. We're really at a loose end, so to speak. But accepting that is also the case, accepting that, that a gay man is not going to have that experience and that some ways that experience is an extraordinary privilege for humans to create another human life, and it won't be available to me. Tough. <laughs> it doesn't mean heterosexuals are superior. It just means I acknowledge reality in the same way that it seems to me that sensible trans people who do successfully transition to the other gender are not under some weird delusion that they are indistinguishable from someone who was born with that sex at birth. They're not. They can I have, I be treated have, as such. Yes. They can be treated as such. They should have the rights as such. But at some point, no, you're not. And that that's okay. Issue, I think that issue is unique in my life, by the way. It is the one issue that when it comes up on my screen, I take my computer and throw it out the window and then I gather <laughs> it up later because I don't want to know about it because I don't want to be involved in it because the only thing that I know about that debate, this is the one thing that I know, <laughs> is that anybody who's involved in it is their lives have just essentially been ruined by it. Yes, and if, this is I don't true. really, I have a life that I, it just, it's not worth it to me. And the only thing that I know about the debate is that the debate isn't possible at the moment. And I, I, it's the first time in my life that something that would normally interest me, I have actually studiously avoided. And that is actually true. Because you you're, a, you're a fucking to, coward, Moynihan. Well, I, I know, absolutely. I you are, no you are, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 100% true. Yeah, I'm a coward. I don't, <laughs> I sh I, the one thing I'm not cowardly about is shying away from acknowledging that I'm a coward. That's I will confront the bravery. fact that I, I'm a coward. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, in 200, 300 episodes of the fifth column, I've never talked about it in primarily because it's one of those things that doesn't sort of interest me. Also, it's just I don't really care. So why would I even bother? It's I have no interest in, in jumping out of a plane. So why risk the shoot not opening when I'm not going to enjoy it in the first place? I just don't really care at this point. And I, the only thing I know is that I will defend people to the death if they're making these arguments and people are saying that one cannot have them. And I, I mean, the thing that happened with Abigail Schreier. Is Schreier, that yeah, Schreier. Yeah. yeah, I did one thing in that. I did buy her book. I haven't read it. It's, it's sitting on my shelf. But I bought, my, I bought her book on Amazon because I could. And I found out that they didn't want me to. So it doesn't matter. I mean, if that was the fucking Turner Diaries, I'd probably buy it. I don't like people um, limiting the access to totally mainstream material from somebody from the Wall Street Journal that, you know, I would potentially like to read and see, you know, I have Mein Kampf on my shelf and I have it because I understand the psychopathic person that wrote it better by reading it. And I don't know why it's shocking to me that's even a, a controversial statement these days. I mean, the idea of that we've replaced the verb report with platform is when I realized our industry was totally fucked, was that, you know, why are you platforming this person? It's like, well, they're hugely influential 
And the reason that you know that they suck is because somebody quote unquote platformed them. How the fuck would you know otherwise? You have to find out about these people. And I'm not worried that Americans are going to be corrupted by information if it you know, goes through their ear holes. Come on, guys, please. Well, that's this is we something that we share that isn't currently shared, which is that I don't see how ideas actually, unless implemented, but just the raising of ideas and the talking about ideas harms anyone in any tangible way. It can upset them. It could even possibly really demoralize them. It may outrage them, but it's not sticks and stones may break your bones, but but words can never harm you is something that I've always understood. And in fact, of course, this has come to haunt me. I don't know why I've had this. I do have a kind of weird attraction to third rails. I just, what happens if I just grab this one for a minute? Whether that be Israel, whether that be race, whether that be trans, I'm just and you, fascinated. You end, and you end up with a substack. That's where it ends. Well, that's you would, you, yes. <laughs> There's no other option in the end. You're stuck in a substack. And <laughs> although, again, the great thing is that I don't think I have, I don't, I have as many readers as I used to have. And you probably have more money than you used to have. And I have a lot more money than I used to have. So I'm not That's whining. Great. And in some ways, the key thing is the First Amendment. And once, you know, you, if you want to worry about these things, look at Canada or the UK where your kid can report you for saying something not consonant with trans ideology and the cops will come and knock on your door that actually happens right now in in the uk which is to my mind an absolute uh, farce but yeah i don't get that and because of that uh, we share a view of maximal intellectual freedom even among those topics that can be upsetting to people and that's the, the next generation the younger generation just has internalized that is bad and there are certain... the, the things that upset me, I mean, why, why are those not the standard? I mean, things, I mean, who decides what that standard is? Because, I mean, I read things that upset me every day. I don't go, you know, calling the, the police and, you know, Hull. You know, I don't know what, you know, there was a tweet that came across my screen, you know, can you get the, the, the cops to come around and, and do something about it? But no, I mean, these standards, they have to, I mean, it's always gives granting governments and institutions the, the more power to police you because at some point somebody has to judge what the standard is and what the offensive standard i don't even know and i've never fucking figured this out what it means to be offended and primarily that's because nothing has ever really offended me i say oh my god that's a little much or you know maybe i'll turn <laughs> not my cup of tea i've never actually said that i like really horrifying things but you know when i don't go and sit in the corner and weep and you know you mentioned matt and and, and trey and I was in a hotel room a couple of nights ago and wildly, massively hung over. And I was like, oh, there's a South Park that I hadn't seen. It was on the, the, the sort of pay-per-view or, the, you know, whatever, direct TV thing. And it was an episode where, where Cartman is diagnosed with anxiety. And the whole episode is like, no, no, we're all anxious. I mean, anxiety is just the thing that everyone is like, no, but you have to treat me and everybody has to bow to me because I'm anxious about things. So don't say X or Y or Z. And it's like, that's how I feel that the entire world has become in some ways is that, you know, if you're offended by something, my response to you is to maybe pet you on the head, get you a cup of Barry's tea and tell you to fuck off. I mean, I, I don't care. I truly <laughs> don't care. Why would I have time for you to be bummed out about a book that you read or a, a TV show that you saw? And I think the most amazing version of this recently is how so many people in the world of media and journalism, and I use journalism very loosely, 
have taken this stuff in is that I watched this show on HBO called White Lotus. It's very good and you should watch it. Written by this guy, Gay. He's a gay named, I can't remember his name, but it's about these families on vacation. And it is very dark, very funny and kind of anti-woke. And I saw an interview with him recently where he kind of hints at this the whole way. And there are all these rich families. And I read a thing about this in New York Magazine and they said, oh, you know, it is really a criticism of whiteness. And I'm like, why? No, it's actually not. <laughs> if, if you ask the guy who wrote it, he will tell you specifically, no, it's not. But this is so in, in the groundwater of everything that this idea of offense and just sort of parsing everything to the smallest, ooh, that might be wrong. And let's write an article about how that person, that character was not you know, nice enough to that other trans character or something like, this is what literature has become. I mean, there was a story that you tweeted that I actually sent to the Bill Maher people. And I said, oh, this is actually something that, that, that it really appalls me. And it was the author who won the Orwell Prize, ironically, who was going back and rewriting segments of her book because seven woke people on Goodreads had said, I don't know, this is, you know, this character should be a different race. I can't even remember the exact exact complaint was. She described, sometimes she described physical characteristics that seem to flirt with stereotypes, including almond eyes and things like that. I mean, just, oh. I went, I looked at those alleged offenses and I was just like, what alleged offense? But the yeah. fact that she, as a yeah. writer, caved. This is what I don't understand. You're right. People are going to whine forever. But why do the writers and editors, for a millisecond, take that seriously? I mean, and debase themselves, too, in this kind of, you know, 1938 show trial. I mean, you're like fucking, you know, Kirov or something sitting there going, yes. I mean, this honestly, this is why I recommend Darkness at Noon to everyone, is this is, you know, Rubashev tries to save himself and gets that cold gun medal on the nape of his neck and gets executed while he's saying, I'm sorry for all of these things that I didn't actually do, but I did them and I'm sorry for doing these counter-revolutionary things to the party, will you please save me? But there's no saving you. And this is the thing that these people don't understand. They don't want your apology. The apology is no, they want the ritual of you begging for it, but it's never accepted. Have you ever seen anyone who apologized, who was allowed back into polite society after, you know, they jerked off in front of somebody and asked them about it, Louis C.K.? I mean, no, to, if Louis wants to have a career again, he has to pay Madison Square Garden, which he did uh, last week, and then sell the thing out, which he did, and then make his money that way. And the last concert film he did, he put out on his own platform, which he did. And he sold that thing and made a ton of money. Much like you, it's the Substack for comedians. He did it himself. But he has enough of an audience built in that he can actually do that. Most people are ruins at the inception and they can't actually ever do anything at all. But it's shocking to me that people think that there's a necessity or requirement to apologize. It's like, no, here's my recommendation to you. If you don't feel you did anything wrong, don't admit to doing anything wrong and tell them to go fuck themselves. Nobody wants Al Franken back. Al Franken apologized and then later said, well, I didn't really mean it because he did that. There was a piece in The New Yorker where he talked about it and I think indicated that he thought the whole process was unfair, which it was. And, you know, but he did the apology, the ritual apology. Why? They're still going to execute you. <laughs> they don't want you. You, know? you should apologize if you got something wrong. Yes, That's 100%. quite clear, obviously. Yes. Always apologize yeah. for error. That's, that's probably made in good faith. We all do it all the time. I write an apology for why I fucked up my views on the Iraq war. You're but am I going to be a... 
<laughs> you monetized how shitty you are. Well, no, we didn't sell it. We didn't sell it. <laughs> it oh, was free. Wow. That's uh, really Catholic of you. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, I have that streak, I'm afraid. I'm constantly, I'm terrified I've sinned. I, mean, I do it all the time. As you're <laughs> yes, obviously you're, well aware. Yeah, you um, but, I mean, obviously, you're... I, well, look, it's not exactly that. It's not the den of iniquity people make it out to be. It really isn't. It's a rather lovely. Just because I'm a pervert in the title pools, doesn't mean doesn't mean Can it's that a den the of iniquity. Title of the memoir, by the way, a pervert in the title pools. Well, Why? there's the gay. Be I know you would love me to talk about the gayness over here forever because it's funny to you, yeah. and it is funny. Gay people, there's something funny about it. I mean, one reason I love talking to you is that everything is a source of amusement, and there's never. I know I'm never gonna. You're never gonna be offended. You'll be interested. I, I, I don't think I ever have been offended <laughs> so, in my life. I, and by the way, this is funny. Actually, this is interesting. And I was talking about this with somebody yesterday. We were talking about um, Louis C.K. This is why it was fresh in my mind. And I said something about Kevin Spacey and the whole Kevin Spacey thing. And I read the initial stuff about Kevin Spacey, right? And I know there's different stories, but the one story, which I think turned out not to be true because the kid dropped it because he wouldn't give the prosecutors his phone because apparently he was sending pictures and Snapchats and like, I'm going to hitting on Kevin Spacey, watch this kind of thing. But, you know, I just, I was so strange to me because as somebody who has been in many gay bars in my life, just, you know, anthropologically, you know, just happened to, you know, walk into the wrong one and say, oh, what am I doing here? Let's stay for eight drinks. Um, I, <laughs> when that's, you know, I get them for free when I'm in a gay bar. It's amazing. Everything is free in a gay bar. Um, and people do grab, they'll maybe grab your dick. People maybe touch you a lot. It's, this doesn't happen with me in the straight bars. It's never happened. Unfortunately, I've tried to make it just doesn't happen. And like when I read some of this Kevin Spacey stuff, and again, I'm not defending him. I don't know the, the details of all the cases, but there was one thing I read and I was like, yeah, isn't that just a gay bar? Isn't that just, I, I don't know. I just thought that, that maybe the language is slightly different. I just assumed that's what it was. And again, I'll get in trouble for saying that, but I didn't, for the me, difference, I, the like, difference oh, is I, simply I a different thing. Different attitudes between men and women that are very different. If you create an environment that is both sexual and all male, yeah. there is no female restraint involved. And it can lead to all can. sorts of cray. And it can. can get out of hand or in your hand. But I, I do, I would, I, I'm, when I first walked into, and it's gotten better, Michael, it's gotten better. People are not, in the old days, I would walk into a bar and have my my butt grabbed a few times and, and if i would say hello to someone in the old days like this is like the 19 there are people who grew up and being gay in the 70s they kiss you right in the lips yeah, when yeah. you meet them i'm like no yeah. thank you yeah. we have actually normalized a little bit and less of that takes place but the issue of consent between gay men is a totally different phenomenon than yeah. between men and women it just is because men and women are fundamentally different on that sexual this is one of my old things if you really want to see the differences between men and women fully elaborated and proven just look at the difference between gay men and lesbians almost two communities could almost have almost no two communities have less in common than those two we live in the same place you might as well not see them at all now obviously that's a, a grotesque generalization i have plenty of lesbian friends and so on and so forth but you're at six o'clock in the morning here the lesbians are walking their dogs the gay men are struggling back for a one night stand that is the that's essentially the difference. And and you also have to understand the lesbians here are like, they weren't too happy with all these gay men coming in and giving each other COVID. There's a there's a real undercurrent of, <laughs> of tension there because the gays are so fucking irresponsible and the lesbians have to always clean up our mess. So you're pro-lesbian in this argument, basically. No, I'm always pro-gay, actually, at some level. And I hope, you know, my hope about 
PC does is at some point gay men are going to rebel because they're going to realize that they're now the target for all these people and they're funding organizations that are basically telling them they're the oppressors. And at some point, people are going to say, fuck this. No, we want to be we want to be our subversive gay men and and defending biological sex, defending dick, as it were, as a critical element of what it means to be homosexual. Whereas the current trans movement is about saying that to be homosexual is not you, you can have sex with people with vaginas. If you're gay, that's perfectly fine. You just haven't met the right trans man with a vagina in order to have sex with. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. The last person that told me if I just worked at it, I could have sex with someone with a vagina was a priest. And I didn't agree with them. And I'm not going to agree with you. And no, I, I had the have... same conversation. He turned out to be absolutely right. I was like, oh, yeah, I can, let me try that out. <laughs> the priest told me that I have to try this out. And guess what? Yes. <laughs> um, guess what? You, I think you were the one that pointed this out to me and, and the, the long tradition of kind of rough anti-PC instincts in gay culture. Was it, I think it was you that pointed out the magazine, the AIDS magazine? Oh yeah, Diseased Pariah News. Yeah, which I went and looked up and was like, oh my God, that is brutal, brutal. It was but also like, gallows humor, you know? Yeah, it was an I, AIDS zine. Know, I'll tell the readers because uh, I should explain it to them. It was an AIDS zine put out by people who were dying of AIDS. <laughs> yeah. It had a centerfold every issue of a skinny 90-pound person with lesions, uh, which listed their various opportunistic infections, how old they were, and whether they were a top or a bottom. It was. It, it had a masthead, which had editors underneath it, had parenthesis, at time of press. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because half I'm... of them were dead by the next issue. At the bottom, they had a dead boyfriend society section. They had a dietary section called Get Fat, Don't Die, which was basically full of the, the fattiest food you could possibly eat if you were trying to stay alive. The gay men have a wicked, subversive element to them that is not very compatible with wokeness. And at yeah. some point, is going to, and have an attachment to biological sex, which is not very uh, convenient for wokeness. I remember back in the 90s when we had that massive gay rights march in 93. It was very important. We were all supposed to be on our best behavior. This was during the don't ask, don't tell stuff. It was the beginning of Clinton and everyone showed up in force. And yet in front of me in the march with this group of guys, about 20 of them, wearing ridiculous hats, just absurd over the top hats. And with a big poster above their head saying, gays in the millinery. And <laughs> and I was like, this is a civil right. You're not supposed to be punning, <laughs> punning your way to victory. Or the or the gay group that unfold a big banner outside their window that just simply had their philosophy summed up. And it was more tongue, less teeth. And that was what they were fighting for. Now, obviously off message, massively off message. But what I find glorious, and it's true here too, there's still the drag queens, there are still the traditionalists, there are still the quirky people the eccentrics who just will not be squeezed into that woke box no. because they still have a bit of life left in them and see the point of laughing even when it's incredibly dark. That, I mean, that's, I think, I'm sure there's political elements to it too that it doesn't line up with my politics in general, but I, I tend to think of it as less political, my objection to this stuff, because I just think it's humorless. I think that it, it's just, you know, dark and and grotesque and humorless and just destroys fun. I mean, that's what, what I don't like about it is that you, you attack Matt and Trey, you know, you attack, I mean, people go back, like you could attack Richard Pryor. You could, I mean, I, the, the two guests on the top of the Bill Maher show were Martin Short and Steve Martin. And 
I saw Martin Short and I, and I said, you know, I, you know, my favorite sketch when I was a kid was a sketch that he did on SNL called Jackie Rogers Jr. $100,000 jackpot wad in which he was, an, <laughs> he, which was, he was an albino, maybe gay game show host. And one of the guests was Billy Crystal playing Sammy Davis Jr. Fully playing Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, and by the way, looks exactly like him. And it is very funny. And I'm like, okay, so if the offense archaeology is the thing that I hate so much, that goes back <laughs> into, you know, goes through the rubbish and tries to find offenses from the past. And I always make this joke of who's going to get canceled in death next? Because I remember when David Bowie died, somebody brought, well, you know, he had a 17-year-old girlfriend or a 16-year-old girlfriend, which turned out, I don't think, to be entirely true. But when they die, it's, oh, wait a second your hero, do you remember this about them? And then somebody writes an article about it, is that who's going to be canceled in death next? My my bet is always Eric Clapton, who got drunk in, in 1980 and was on drugs on a concert. And he said something about the National Front and about immigrants. And that'll, I don't think anyone remembers that, but it'll come up when he dies, I'm sure. But it's just this, you know, death of fun. And when you mentioned that AIDS magazine, it's brutality. It's horrible and it's funny and it's produced by the people who are going through the thing that they are making fun of. And it reminded me that when I was a kid, I had a family that I was very close to who were Jewish, half Jewish, half Italian, and the Jewish side constantly made Holocaust references. Constantly. I mean, it was like the joke always was kind of a Holocaust joke at, at some, and, you know, and Joan Rivers, who's one of my great heroes, used to make these amazing Anne Frank jokes and like people got offended all the time. I mean, they, they asked her to apologize at the end of her life because she made, I think, I don't know, an Obama joke or something. Oh no, the joke was, this is incredible. <laughs> she made a joke about that, uh, that German woman who used to be married to Seal. What is her name? The, the, oh, Heidi Klum. Heidi Klum. And she was walking on the, the cat or the, or the, the uh, red carpet and she had this plunging dress exposing these heaving breasts. And Joan Rivers <laughs> is looking at this and she goes, oh my God, the last time I saw a German that hot, he was putting my uncle in an oven. And <laughs> everyone went crazy. In her, she, ha she changed her name. She's a very Jewish last name. Her family died in the Holocaust. Her husband, Edgar, killed himself. And I think his family died in the Holocaust. Very close and real to her. And she used to make jokes about this stuff all the time. And she had a great, and you go look this up, her explanation of why we needed to joke about these things. I mean, she had a bunch of Anne Frank bits. Like one was just a very simple joke. She's like, I've written like 10 books. Why does anyone give a shit about her? She wrote one. And it's, it's horrible, but it's funny. And we know why we're laughing. We're not yes. laughing because we like Nazis or because we like genocide. And this is my issue with this stuff. I just want life to be fun and funny and people to be able to screw up and people to be able to make jokes about different religions or cultures or that whatever, requires and not Michael, lose their life that requires part of life that is not political it requires a liberal right. order a liberal exactly. order says there is a distinction between public and private life yeah and that's and we will give people that freedom in other words a, a reprieve from struggle constant struggle yes. Which, of yeah. course, is liberalism's great achievement. That is what, that's what's yeah. so fabulous about it. And why the public-private distinction is also incredibly important to sustain. Mm -hmm. I find one of the more really ugly parts of contemporary activism is when people go outside people's apartments and mm -hmm. harass them. That is a violation of very core liberal principles, like going over somebody's family member. And we need to be careful about that because what we do is we remove the space in our life to laugh, to 
to let off steam, to let some of the tensions, especially when we are living and and perspective is necessary. No country has ever had this, this much ethnic, cultural, religious diversity, ever. It has never been attempted before as a democracy. It is going to create all sorts of friction because we're humans. We 195,000 years on this planet, we were entirely tribal, we're suspicious of anybody outside of our tribe. This is in our genes. So how do you do that? You do it by inculcating values of toleration, obviously, but also humor is necessary because these conflicts are going to happen. You're going to feel them better to express them and let that tension out through humor than through violence or through constant haranguing of people or, uh, or censorship. Laughter is extraordinarily important in the sustaining a multiracial society. And take that away, and we, we just start moving, inching towards physical conflict. And, and we need to avoid that. Yeah, and you know, the final thing I'll say on this is that you know, I, I can never, only when I'm talking to you, I, mean, I can never stop bringing up uh, Hitch, who right. I, I miss dearly. And yes. you know, 10 years, so crazy, it'd be 10 Can't years. Can't believe it. And, you know, the thing about Christopher was beyond being an amazing stylist and somebody who could write. I was so envious of he could write a beautiful column that didn't need editing in, you know, six minutes after 48 uh, glasses of Johnny Walker, is that the reason that Christopher and I became friends and, and you know, remained friends until the end and never had, it was never a political conflict and we disagreed with things, it's just he was unbelievably funny. He was funny. And that was just the thing that Christopher got away with so much because he was so goddamn funny. And there was that certain British wryness to him that disarmed Americans, but especially disarmed people in DC, who tend to be a humorless bunch. And, and Christopher was just so out of place there and just smarter than everybody and funnier than everybody. And it didn't matter if he was right or wrong in an issue. He was a joy to be around. And it was mostly because I thought he was so goddamn funny. And that's He was. Funny. And yeah. And I, remember, also, I remember him getting in trouble, uh, you know, for in, in a piece in New York Magazine calling you a lesbian. <laughs> oh, yes, he did call me a lesbian. That was uh, I don't think it was in New York Magazine. I think he called me that on the air. Don't be so oh. lesbian. Uh, he, he, he is incredibly funny. I remember my favorite moment of him it was, was when after, I think, was it Jerry Falwell died? And uh, yeah, and he was on with Ralph Reed and Sean Hannity. Yeah. The and the, yeah, the way he, he said, this man, if you gave Jerry Falwell an enema, you could bury him in a matchbox. <laughs> and it's just, by the time your mind has wrapped itself around that metaphor, you're in hysterics and you, can, yeah. you have nothing left to offer. Anyway, on that wonderful note, Michael, thank you for keeping us sane, keeping me sane anyway. Um, thanks for being so real and funny and keep up the amazing work. We the Fifth is a fantastic podcast. It's diverse, it's funny, it's, it's gregarious, it's full of humor and provocation, and I can't recommend it highly enough. And, and we have to have you my... back on soon, Andrew. I would love to do that. I would love to do right. that. And I will I will do soon once the, the, the book stuff is out of the way. Michael well, Moynihan. We'll do, it, we'll do it at the end for the book, too. So. Oh, well, we'll that'd be nice. Book. We'll do it soon. We'll do it soon, then. Okay. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. The most handsome... Uh, and attractive <laughs> pundit <laughs> just makes men swoon and women swoon all the time and also a very sharp and funny human being. So that's it for this week. And as I said, we're going to take a, a little break because we normally do it, as I always do, being a European at the end of August for a couple of weeks. We'll be having a, a podcast, nonetheless, uh, a, a reprise of a long conversation I had with Johan Hari in two parts 
about my own ideological and political and personal evolution over the years, which was a really interesting conversation. And meanwhile, if you get a chance, please buy Out on a Limb, Selected Writing 1989 to 2021. It's been having a really great reception, and I'm incredibly flattered and psyched about it. And please don't forget, buy it now on Amazon or in your local bookstore. Thanks so much for listening. Have a lovely Labor Day, and we'll see you in the fall, in September. Bye. <laughs>